Sick Boy Podcast is a health and comedy show about what it's like to be sick. Wait, is that right? How can illness be funny? You'd be surprised. Okay. Sick Boy is hosted by me, Brian Stever. And me, Taylor McGilvery. And myself, Jeremy Saunders. Come on in and join us to melt your heart, learn something fascinating, and bust a belly laugh. Trust us, you'll be glad you did. You can find Sick Boy on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your pods. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. I want to talk today about a book that you might have read in high school, especially if you grew up going to like Canadian or American high schools, a book that you might have been assigned to write a book report on. I was uh, I'm, I am still the son of a high school English teacher, so I feel like there were like always like six or seven copies of this book around my house. I'm talking about To Kill a Mockingbird. If you're not as familiar, uh, the book is from 1960. It's from the author Harper Lee. It tells a lot of different stories. The the main story is the story of a lawyer named Atticus Finch who is defending a man named Tom Robinson, a black man accused of rape charges against a young white woman in a small Alabama town. And the events are narrated through the eyes of Atticus's six-year-old daughter, Scout. The book becomes this sensation. It's seen as one of the great American novels. It gets the Pulitzer Prize. In 2006, check this out, the Association of British Librarians ranked it ahead of the Bible as the one book every adult should read before they die. And I get it. I mean, it's about so much. Class, race, crime, compassion, love, innocence, gender. I mean, I could keep going. So then the movie comes out in 1962. That gets three Academy Awards. Gregory Peck plays Atticus Finch. I mean, it's an um, unbelievable performance. And now Richard Thomas, who, uh, if you're of a certain vintage, you'll remember as John Boy from The Waltons, is playing Atticus in Aaron Sorkin's adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, Aaron Sorkin is the guy behind, like, The West Wing and A Few Good Men and, and the screenwriter for The Social Network. Anyway, this version of To Kill a Mockingbird did really well on Broadway. Now it's being toured all across North America. It just finished a run in Toronto. It's coming back to Canada next year. Tickets for those May Toronto shows have just gone on sale. But ahead of all that, I got to talk to Richard Thomas. Here's our conversation. Richard, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, Tom, it's great. I'm just fine. Thank you for having me. What went through your head when you were offered the uh, Atticus role? Well, you know, I knew it was coming. I knew they were developing the show. And I thought, well, this tour, this show's going to tour. And this is just the best story to tour around the country. So when they, after they opened and it was a success, they got in touch with me and said, would you be interested in, in taking it around? I said, absolutely. So I was thrilled. I, I was very excited to be to be asked. Excited is interesting to me because um, Atticus is a role unlike a, a, a lot of other roles. I mean, he's he's more like Richard III. He's more like, you know, Macduff or something like that. Like, do you feel any pressure taking on a, 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 an esteemed role like this one? If I, if I worried about that, I never would have played Hamlet, Richard II, Richard III, or done Chekhov or played any of those parts, which have all been played by 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 great, great actors. No, um, that's the, the essence of repertoire is that you take on roles that have been played by other people and you bring what you can uh, in your own interpretation. And hopefully that illuminates the, the, the text in different ways. So, no, it wasn't really intimidating. It's just it's a beautifully written part. It's a very it's a big part, you know. Um, Aaron has really done an amazing thing. He decided that in the in the novel and in the and in the movie, Atticus is, is a kind of idealized figure um, who's who is uh, not who's one one position removed from the center of the story because it's really Scout is the protagonist of that 
of the novel and the and the film. And Aaron decided that in the play he wanted to move Atticus to the protagonist chair and give him the the sort of protagonist journey. So he's done a wonderful job of number one taking him off the pedestal, which is which is a very good thing to do. And giving us an Atticus with uh, who is very teachable and who has a lot to learn and who has a wonderful sense of humor and who is perhaps less idealized and more accessible just as a character. Uh, and I, and so that's a, that's a thrill for all of the Atticai who get to play it. Let, let's stay on that for a second because and th- and this is my fault because I, I I should have been clearer in my question. Uh, um, the question I was curious about was not about you know taking on a role that Jeff Daniels has taken on or taking on a role oh. that 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 um, oh. that Gregory Peck has taken on. I mean, I uh, it, it, it's about the idea of playing um, a character who has been idealized so much. Yes, yes, exactly. This great stoic morality of of Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird, but in in uh, in your answer, you, you you sort of illuminated me even more. The idea that you were going to take him down from the pedestal that he was on, that Sorkin was going to take him down from the pedestal that he was on. What, 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 t- tell me more about that. Well, I think we didn't need another. What we don't we need right now is a white savior story. Although I don't know why people call him a white savior because he doesn't win the case. <laughs> Poor Tom Robinson dies, so it's, it's like he doesn't he doesn't succeed. But he simply tries to do the right thing. Um, but but people would say to me, "What does it feel like to be playing an icon?" And of course, what I say is, "Icons, you can't play an icon. An icon isn't playable." You know. Um, and uh, you can only play a, a, a person, a full, a fully fledged human character, and that's what that's what Aaron has done. I mean, he's really, he's just made him a man of his time and place in a in a in a beautifully accessible way. You know, Atticus is one of these characters, a little bit like I would say, well, Harold Bloom would 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 talk about um, Falstaff in this way that he's a, a character who has a kind of vitality that steps off the page and 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 he feels like an actual person outside of the medium in which he's presented there are people who talk about Atticus as if he was a real person I, I I I speak frequently after the show with lawyers and even judges who talk about Atticus Finch as if he had been a mentor to them when they were uh, he does have a, a a presence that comes off the page as if he were a historical character rather than a fictional creation. And that's wonderful and very, very exciting. But the idealization of Atticus it gets in the way of the kind of flesh and blood character that makes for good drama on the stage, in my opinion. Yeah, if I understand you correctly, a a perfect unflawed character would actually be a very boring character to play on stage. Well, someone that you it's only you, someone that you couldn't really relate to at the level of what he's going through. Um, you know, I I like uh, I, I what I like to say is that what what Aaron's text does is it interrogates all of Atticus's unassailable virtues, you know, um, and uh, his feeling about community and his feeling about human nature and his feeling about uh, about justice and the institutions of justice and what wh- whether and and their flawed nature, all of these things, it's a big awakening. And he experiences, in I think perhaps even a more profound way in the play, the experience of black trauma, which um, because it's a story about a white family experiencing black trauma in a new kind of way. It's also a wonderfully 
funny and endearing story about childhood and the memory of childhood and those. And sometimes that aspect of the story gets overshadowed. Uh, I mean, Tom Robinson's trial takes up, I don't know what, two chapters of the book, but uh, it's, it, it, uh, it bears a particular weight now in our time and place. And it is our story as Americans. It's, it's always going to be, it's always going to be a story we need to tell because it continues to be our story. You know, Aaron said, you know, that there's pushback, pushback against this, this material on the left from people who don't want a white savior narrative, which this isn't. And people, there's pushback on the, from the right or people who don't like it because it makes Jim Crow look bad, you know? So <laughs> it's, it's, um, it, it, it is our story for better and worse. And we have to keep telling it. When I was a boy, I had, my father gave me one of those air rifles, an air rifle. He said I could shoot all the Blue Jays I want, probably knowing I'd never be able to hit one. But to always remember that it was a sin to kill a mockingbird. A sin, a crime against God. I asked him why. And he said it was because they were innocent. And I became a lawyer. Um. I should be clear at this part of the interview that I'm not uh, I'm not an actor and I don't have any uh, theater background. As you could probably tell from the plaid, I'm a, I'm a folk musician. Um, <laughs> but 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 I find that I find the techniques of acting very very interesting. And someone who's uh, had a, such an esteemed career as yourself, I'm, I'm curious about this. So uh, and so forgive me if this is a bit reductive. Um, I had uh, Aaron Sorkin in I want to say two or three years ago, maybe three or four years ago uh-huh. at this point. And he was talking to me a little bit about how he writes dialogue, right? And he 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 loved that I was a, a musician because he said, you know, I really try to write dialogue like music. I mean, he was talking to me like how he's a singing – he used to be a singing telegram guy. He used to go around t- door to door doing singing telegrams. And he said that was I a really – Yeah, yeah. That was a really influential thing for him. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, when I was working on The West Wing um, – it wasn't enough for uh, um, someone to deliver. It wasn't enough for Rob Lowe to deliver the line I wrote. He had to deliver it in the cadence and the rhythm of which I wrote it. As a as an actor, how did you find that part of taking on Sorkin's work? When you play different playwrights, and I've played a lot of them, whether it's Mamet or Albee or or you know Aaron Sorkin or or Chekhov or Shakespeare. I don't know. There's a voice there, and the voice has a particular way. Um, it has a particular musicality. Sometimes it's less obviously musical, but um, and specifically in terms of, of of this play, as I was learning it, I wrote uh, I wrote an email to Aaron and told him that it was that this text was very much like learning verse. Uh, he writes. He, he writes a beautiful phrase. And all I'm having said this, everybody says, well, what is it like? Is it the same kind of rapid fire dialogue? Well, the dialectic is every bit as acute as, as always in his, in his writing, but he has written a, a, an authentically Southern play, which, which in its cadences and its music, its rhythms and its, its terms of phrase and diction is very, very authentically Southern and that mitigates against the sort of rat-tat-tat quality that you get from some of his, some of his arguments. And in a good way, it's a, it's a change. But I told him, I said, you know, this, because he writes, it's, it's very clear, the, the rhythms, the stops, the punctuation, oh, it's very clear in his work what he, how he wants it to be. 
And he writes very long lines, almost sort of Marlovian lines that, 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 that really should be spoken on one breath and spoken to the end of the line. So verse is very easy to learn. You know, Shakespeare, Shakespeare's verse is easier to learn than his prose. Um, and learning this play was very much like learning, uh, learning uh, verse. And so it went in very easily. And because of the way he writes, there's so much delight and relish in the language. And that also makes language lines easier to learn. What, what I know it's a long-winded answer, but he, but, a, but the question was very good. Oh, I, I, I appreciate it, and I, and, I, and I learned a lot there. And I'm so glad you didn't pass out from having to do some of those monologues on one breath. <laughs> I like to. Hey, that's breath is the whole thing, and so the, how your uh, how your 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 breath and the text are, are wed. So uh, that's to to have a long line like that that you have to take in breath, and then where to you know which syllables to count all that. That's a delight. That's that's the pleasure of it. Am, am I right that the actor who played uh, Miss Henry uh, Debose in the show that I saw, the touring show that I saw? Is the actor that played Scout in the film yes. in '62, Mary Baddam? Yes, Mary. Yes, Mary Baddam played Scout in the movie. Miss Scout, you think you could tell us what happened? I don't know. All of a sudden, somebody grabbed me, knocked me down on the ground. Then I saw someone carrying Jim. Well, who was it? Well, there he is, Mister Tate. He can tell you his name. That's wild, Richard. That's yeah. she, I didn't know. I know. That's crazy. I know. She's our cherry on top. She's our guardian angel. It's wonderful. Um, and she's a wonderful woman and has devoted her life to social justice and talking about the story. And and uh, and she happily joined our company and is still with us. Did she tell you anything about the about the filming back then? Did she did you ask her any questions about Peck oh, or anything? Oh, sure. I didn't really. Well, I knew Greg Peck, so I, I, I um, it, it uh, yeah, we would talk about it, you know, uh, t- to some degree. Uh, you know, she's she's very ready and willing to share, and I mean, I didn't really have questions for her, but she would share things. It was wonderful. I've never heard anyone call him Greg Peck before. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. Are you kidding me? That was very cool was for a, me. He he was a really really terrific guy. He was a, a, a real gentleman in, in the sort of an old Hollywood sense. He was a, a beautiful person with a great sense of humor. Very, very special man. And, and I, I didn't, we, I didn't know him intimately, but, but he would, he used to, he used to run the, the public reading series at the LA public library, which I did um, for him on occasion. And uh, it was just, and it was great to get to know him. I am confident that you gentlemen will review the evidence that you have heard and restore this man to his family. In the name of God, do your duty. You said your actor's equity card is how old? 65 years old. I have a senior actor's equity card this year. So you you started as a child actor, right? I made my debut on Broadway in 1958 uh, in a play called, in, in the same play in which James Earl Jones made his Broadway debut. A play called Sunrise of Campobello about, about uh, Franklin Roosevelt. What, what, what got you into acting? Like what, what, what excited you about acting that young? 
Well, I was my parents were ballet dancers. I was raised really backstage and in, in, the, in the in the world of the ballet. They danced with many companies, including Balanchines, when I was little, and and so the theater was my world. And uh, they were after they left that company. My dad was dancing and doing some summer stock in upstate New York, and they they needed a kid for something, and they asked me, and I did it, and I loved it. And then I went back to New York, and they were casting for this play. And my first grade teacher happened to be a children's agent, so she said, do you want to come in and audition for this? And I did, and I got the part, and that was the beginning of it. It was also the period of live television, too. So I spent all that that time doing doing theater and, and, doing, and doing live TV, which was a great, great learning experience. What did you do? What live TV did you do? Oh, God, Hallmark Hall of Fame. I did about four of those. And, you know, DuPont Show of the Month, Armstrong Circle Theater. Just, you know, there was, I, I did three different soap operas. Just this it was a great, great training ground for a young actor. Did you bring us anything? Cookies? Cookies? You know what your father would say if I brought cookies home with me? Yes, but did you? I might have a little bag of macaroons under my magic cloak. Shall I look? Yes, yes! You didn't dance, though? You didn't... I was by the time I was old enough to start studying dance, I was already, you know, having my career as an actor. And I can't I, I can't be quiet. So I needed to I needed a profession where I could speak. <laughs> this is Richard Thomas urging you to watch our new series, The Waltons, here on CBS. It's more than television's only new dramatic series this season. It's a wonderfully different kind of show. You'll enjoy warm and dramatic and emotion packed stories about me and my family all 11 of us, as well as our friends and neighbors. So be sure to watch The Waltons here on Television 9. So, I mean, what's your, what's your relationship like with the, with the Waltons now? Oh, we're like a big family. We're in touch all the time. I mean, with the show Very itself, close. with the, with the, you know. With, oh, I love it. Yeah. I love it. I, there's, there's not a performance goes by at night when somebody doesn't yell. My John Boy at the curtain call, which makes me very happy. You know, I, I, it was a it was a fabulous show. It was beautifully written and beautifully acted, and completely different from anything else on the air at the time. And John Boy was a an absolute a radical departure from the usual long form television hero. Um, uh, he was a writer and a, and, a, and an, an emotional feeling person, and I mean, he just was. There wasn't any other character written like that to to carry a television series at the time, and and it was. It was so beautifully done, and I'm so proud of it. So I'm I'm very happy with that association. I mean, I, I, I maybe I'm missing a little bit of history here. Up and up until that point, your your average TV protagonist of that age would have been more of a macho, more of more of a fighter, and and John Boy was allowed to be a little bit more sensitive. Is that what you mean? Well, there weren't many that age. First of all, um, I mean, I don't I don't know that there were other adolescent characters, you know, at the center of long of a long form series. But um, yes, his his uh, the fact that I mean it was all you know like you know the detective or the or the doctor or the lawyer or the or, and and this was a and and it was more masculine template for the time that people saw and John Boy introduced a, a, a different feeling tone you know he was a, a writer and he was a he was a young artist who was sort of comfortable in his community, but wanted to move out and have a different kind of life. And so this this idea of a, of a male central character, not driven by action and necessarily accomplishment, is was very different. Look, Gina, we may be a bunch of dirt poor hicks, but we got something a lot of other people miss. 
My mother and father happen to really love each other, and they happen to love their children. I've done an awful lot of thinking about what makes this family work, and I think it's because there's love enough to go around and some to spare. I guess maybe we just care about life, whether it's a wounded raccoon or a runaway boy. Maybe, maybe I should back up a little bit and catch people up. So The Waltons was the show set in, in rural Virginia in the 30s and 40s. It was a, a very wholesome show. It was originally meant to be a Christmas special. It became huge. It ran for nine seasons, had incredible ratings. Why was a show um, – why, why do you think a show that was set in that era during the Depression was a hit in the 70s? Well, there wasn't anything else like it on the air. And in the 70s, you know, with Watergate, with Vietnam, with the end of with the, what was going on in the 70s, it was in, we were we were really a very um, conflicted country in a lot of ways. And there was so much division along family lines and everything. And, and, the, and, the, and the walls was very different. It, it provided a, a sort of a safe family space that was very different in kind and tone. And it was a unifying kind of show that brought people together from many very various different backgrounds to watch it. It was also a show that the whole family could watch in one place. Uh, it was a show that honored old people as well as young people. It was a show that wasn't about fancy, rich, enviable lives, but people who were struggling to make ends meet in the Depression. It was uh, When it went off the air, I would have people come up to me and say, you know, there's no show about people like us anymore. We'd, they're all, everybody's a, everybody's special and wonderful and fantastic. And we don't see a show about a family just struggling to make it work. So it, it did offer a lot that was very, very different um, at the time. And uh, it was quite actually, it was quite revolutionary. There were a lot of shows, a lot of family shows that came along right after that. But it was the first one to do that. And wholesomeness wasn't the point of the Waltons. The point of the Waltons was what it takes to be a family and mutual support and connection. Um, it, it was obviously set in the 30s, so it had that sort of a vibe to it. But but it wasn't. We it didn't. We nobody went on the air to say we have to make a wholesome show. That wasn't. That wasn't you, never the you, point. You know where I think that perception came from, um, and I'm sure you're you're aware of this. Um, in the I think it was in the mid early mid '90s, The Simpsons was. Do you remember this? The Simpsons was kind of blowing up, oh. and and sure. uh, and um, but the, the, I mean it seems so tame in comparison right now, but. Um, Bart was talking back to Homer a lot, and that was something that kind of happened on TV. It was it was Bush, right? Uh, said something like, we, "We need American families need to be more like the Waltons and less like the Simpsons." Remember that? We are going to keep on trying to strengthen the American family to make American families a lot more like the Waltons and a lot less like the Simpsons. Yeah, I think it was I, it was Bush Senior. I think it was during a Republican. National convention or something like that, but but our youngest sibling, Cammy Collar, who played Elizabeth, re- reminded us all at the time that the, that the Waltons were New Deal Democrats. <laughs> and do you remember the Simpsons had that line back? They said um, they did a joke. They were like, "This we're just like the Waltons. We're praying for an end of the Depression too." Yeah, I mean, I, I, there was a lot of that. I mean, there was a great, there were great Doonesbury cartoons about the Waltons. I mean, Carol Burnett did a fantastic lampoon. Mad Magazine did a great, did a great Waltons lampoon. It was, uh, it was just wonderful to be, yeah. to be used and abused in that way. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. More of my conversation with Richard Thomas coming up. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. 
I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. I'm Tom Power. Welcome back to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with Richard Thomas, the award-winning actor who's playing Atticus Finch in the touring production of Aaron Sorkin's adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird. So we've been talking about that. We've been talking about the role that made Richard a household name. He played John Boy on The Waltons, uh, which you know became really famous in the 1970s, in particular for a line that happened at the end of every episode. Night, everybody. Night, Mama. Night, Ben. Good night, everyone. Good night, Mama. Good night, Daddy. Good night, children. Good night, Daddy. Good night, Elizabeth. Good night, John Boy. Good night, Jim Bob. I mean, back in the 1970s, The Waltons was unimaginably big. It felt like everybody in the world was watching it. And Richard was in his 20s when he got that kind of famous. And I, as always, for some reason, I'm very curious about what that does to you. I think a lot about this line that John Updike, uh, the author John Updike said one time, which is that fame is a mask that eats at the face. So I, I brought this up to Richard, and I got to say, I wasn't expecting his answer at all. Here's the rest of my conversation with Richard Thomas. I can't imagine what it was like to have, I mean, there must have been, how many people were watching the world? Millions and millions of people? Millions and millions of people around the world, too, not just in the States. Um you know, we would have like on on average a twenty six share every week, and a twenty six share is is huge. It's it's you're talking about you know twenty five percent of the population of the country watching that show. So, so what does that do but to the you? Other thing that oh, we, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no, what do you mean? What well, what I mean is that's 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 a level of notoriety to to have yeah. that many people. I mean, that can't be easy. Oh, it was easy. It was fun. It was great. Are yeah. you kidding me? <laughs> yes, of course. It was fantastic. Um, you know, I mean, I was in the infinite wisdom of a 21-year-old, which I was when I started the show. You know, what could be better than that? You know, I mean, fortunately, it didn't lead me to a dark place in my yeah. life, you know, uh, because partly because I had been working as an actor my whole life. And it was really at some level just the next job. It was the next job in a in a in an extraordinary way, um, but it but it was the next job, and so I was treating it like that. And I loved all the fame, and I loved all that it gave me great leverage. It is still is still present in in the consciousness of of the public. But I was happy to be able to take it in stride, as well as you can. I mean, as an obnoxious, you're twenty something. You know, you, I mean, obviously, you're going to be become impossible when you become successful like that. But but fortunately, I was able to kind of keep the ship on an even keel for the most part. Is it, is it hard to get work after that? That people don't want a John Boy type. Um, well, there's two things that happen. There are people who don't want a John Boy type and there are people who want a John Boy type and you don't really are not interested in either one of those. I, I was, I was just lucky. I always worked, you know, I turned down jobs that were too much like that. Um, I looked for jobs that were different. I, and I had the theater, you know, I had the theater and the, and the theater is much less bound by those those typecasting restraints. But there's people out there who will always think of me as John Williams. Fine with me. Let me. I want to come back to that in a second. But did you did you say people yell out good night, John Boy to you at this show? 
all the time. Like in To Kill a Mockingbird? Yeah, at the end of the curtain call, sure, all the time. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> bold, bold, man. That's a bold thing to do. Well, the audiences should be bold. I, I believe in bold audiences. It doesn't bother you? No. No, they don't do it during the, in the middle of, of a scene. They do it at the curtain call at the end. But yeah, it's great. You're awful. And, and I don't want to take this. I, I, I think you're going to try and take this as a norm. You're awful even keeled about the experience <laughs> of, of global fame and being typecast and then and then you know and being recognized forever for a role and the reason i say this is because i have met i've been doing this job long enough uh, don't right. don't let the plaid shirt fool you that i i <laughs> i've met enough people who are a bit bitter about it or have had to do a lot of work not not to be bitter uh, about it you're, you're pretty even keeled about it well it was a wonderful thing it was what bless what 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 greater blessing can an actor have than to have a job that number one is is a rocket to to a continued career, and also to have a character that is so vivid in people's minds that they that they think he's real and they think that's who you are. That's I mean we want when we get on stage and give a performance or get in front of the camera for people to believe in this character and to have this character have some real life for them, and that's exactly what happens when you have a success like that. It's a great great thing for an actor to have. Then you have to decide how you how, what you're going to go what you're going to do from there and you know i mean if there's nothing perfect about it i mean i've had disappointments and i've had we all have it's it's a you know it's a long road but i've been i've been really fortunate and uh you know i'm listen i'm i'm able to do this i'm 72 years old and i'm playing atticus finch <laughs> what what have i got to complain about? <laughs> <laughs> um let me let me end on the play you're in right now um, so To Kill a Mockingbird was a book and a, and a movie, and as I mentioned in the introduction, it was seen as quite groundbreaking in how it held up uh, a mirror not just to the racial prejudices in the United States, but also to the hypocrisy within the U.S. And, and mind you, that was back in the 1960s. It's been a good few decades since then. How do you think it still does that through this work? I think people are astonished at how up-to-date the issue is and the, the issue is so justice issues are in the play uh the failure of institutions the the uh, because as many steps forward as have been taken it continues to hold the mirror up to the american nature for better and worse uh the the idea of a black man running away and being shot in the back is something that horrifyingly we are all too familiar with still and in many ways we are still litigating what happened in 1865, and and uh, it has found its way in the most insidious fashion into our into our daily lives, and now in the most overt possible way, uh, we're seeing these the, this profound grain of of our American stain in in our in our daily lives, and that doesn't mean we should be cynical, or it doesn't mean we should it's all about aspiring it's about you know what are our aspirations and how how far short do we fall of them and you know so you know yes it's it's wonderful you have to have atticus Finch. you have to have people who against all odds try to do the right thing whether they succeed or fail and we should admire them and we should be grateful for them you know no matter what the color of their skin you know we, we because this is a fight we have to continue to fight well, I, I can't begin to tell you how much I enjoyed talking to you about about the the work today, and, and thanks for making the time. Thank for you. Us. Me too. 
Yeah, what, man. A, what great questions. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I can't wait to get back to Toronto. I absolutely love being in Canada and I've, I've made a lot of pictures there and and I've, this will be the fifth time I think I've been back in the theater in Toronto. So I'm very, very excited about it. That's my conversation with Richard Thomas. I love saying this kind of thing. The award-winning actor of stage and screen. He plays Atticus Finch in the touring production of To Kill a Mockingbird, adapted for the stage by Aaron Sorkin. How cool was it when Richard Thomas called Gregory Peck? Greg Peck. Yeah, I knew. Yeah, I knew Greg Peck. Uh, The play was just on in Canada recently. It's playing throughout the United States from January to April before heading back to Toronto from May 28th to June 2nd. Tickets for those Toronto shows are on sale now. And that's it for this uh, episode of the podcast. The other episode we put up today is uh, my conversation with the filmmaker Jonathan Glazer, filmmaker and music video director. Jonathan Glazer, uh, we talk about his new film Zone of Interest, The Zone of Interest, and what it was like to film at the Auschwitz concentration camp. Uh, go check that out. See you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.